Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. So Matt Walden, thanks for joining me today. That's a pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, we just uh, published these two papers together, um, most of which was your fine efforts, I have to say. Uh, but um, <laughs> I cannot begin to describe the worlds that, uh, that have opened up as a result of what we covered uh, rather broadly in these two papers. I mean, I, I, I'm looking at this going... Okay, there's enough fodder here for the next 20 years of science research, certainly from my end, with all these different, um, you know, areas of the body that we that we pointed to. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, you've cut your teeth in the, or, you know, you've cut your teeth. You've, you've been involved in physical therapy and body movement for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a paleo leaning. When did your interest in paleo really begin? Well, I think, uh, I think it, you know, really from my early days, even as a child, I was interested in evolution. Um, and, uh, then of course, going through my training as an osteopath, um, you know, there were various influences there, uh, and a naturopath as well. But, but, um, I remember one time, uh, looking at Gray's anatomy and I was supposed to be studying for an exam and I just got, uh, kind of diverted looking at the evolutionary section at the beginning. And I read the whole evolutionary section and then realized I ought to get back to learning about, you know, origins and insertions and all that dry stuff that you have to, to learn to pass exams. So I think that's, that's kind of where it started for me. But, but as I moved into clinical life, uh, you know, I think without knowing uh, the quote, is it Dob- Dobzhansky? I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name, but the guy who said uh, nothing in biology makes sense except for in the light of evolution. Um, that really started to dawn on me that that had some serious weight behind it. So uh, I, guess, I guess that's really where it all started for me. Um, then, uh, you know, actually within the training itself, um, there was a guy there called Phil Beach. And of course, he's the guy that we, we talk about a bit in our papers, um, because Phil was, uh, very interested in both evolution and in uh, embryology as well. And so he really looked at, you know, how the body was made from a, from an embryological perspective and the pressures that have been exerted on it from a, an evolutionary perspective. And so he was a huge influence in my thinking and my understanding in those early days. Um, and so, you know, I qualified in, in 97 and, um, actually my first year I went out to New Zealand, uh, my first year qualified and I saw Paul Czech speaking there and, um, Paul, was talking about this concept called primal patterns. And I thought, oh, that sounds a bit like this concept that, that Phil talks about, which is um, archetypal rest postures, which, which is obviously is the kind of key theme of our papers. Um, and so I ended up going to see Paul speak. And, um, you know, again, you know, it all made so much sense to me. Um, he was also talking about uh, nutrition a fair bit. And he uh, certainly at that stage, he, he was referencing Bill Walcott a lot, who I'm not sure. Have you heard of Bill Walcott? He's the metabolic typing diet guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes. And so a lot of his ideas were, were essentially, you know, not quite paleo. It was, it was perhaps in a way, I, I actually wonder if paleo is going to go a little bit more down the, the route that, that Bill took things, which was to look kind of cross-culturally at, at different, essentially biochemical individuality, as opposed to there being this kind of paleo diet that everyone should eat because we all evolved from that one diet. Of course. And Bill, Bill's, Bill's take was always that, yes, you know, you want to look back to evolutionary principles, but 
you know, certain people have evolved to tolerate milk really well and others have, have not evolved to tolerate milk. And uh, so depending on where you're from in the world and, and what your ancestors' physiology has been exposed to, then, then that's what you'll do best on from a nutritional perspective. So, you know, those, those ideas all really gelled well with me and I applied them clinically and, uh, you know, I've got great results. And so that's, that's where it all started, really. Awesome. Um, you know, that thing you said about Dodjonsky, that nothing in uh, biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. I might, I might, in my mind, be the most important statement in science, Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. In, the, in, in, in the past, uh, you know, few centuries. Well, it's um, almost, it's almost uh, not, it's, he's almost confining himself as well by saying biology, isn't he? Because really it's physics and chemistry and science. Yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... I understand you were involved with Vibram Five Fingers uh, for mm-hmm. a bunch of years. Um, as you know, that's one of my, you know, one of my favorite uh, minimalist shoe companies, and I've uh, I've been a big fan of of the concept for a long time. How did you? What was your What was your role there? Yeah, well, so it's it's quite a. The, the, I'll tell you the slightly longer version of the story, which was that um, this same guy Phil Beach that, that I mentioned already, he. he um, in his various lectures had expressed the notion that barefoot was obviously the way we evolved to be. And if we allow our feet to be bare, then obviously they improve their proprioception and their, you know, the intrinsic muscles function better, etc. So, you know, he used to go out barefoot running back in the nineties. And, um, I actually ended up teaching alongside him and we, we went out on a few runs together barefoot. So that was, um, in the nineties. And, um, I actually wrote a, Adidas, as we call it, I think you guys call them Adidas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I wrote to them in 1999 uh, because they have they had a shoe back then which was a Taekwondo shoe, and it was extremely like slimline, flat to the ground, uh, quite proprioceptive because it was designed for for ta- Taekwondo. Um, and uh, I wrote to them to say, look, if you could just make that a little thinner and put toe pockets into it so that the toes can splay and they can provide the proprioception they're designed to do. Um, then, you know, that'll be a kind of ideal product. And, um, I've still got their response letters, which were rejecting the idea. Basically <laughs> they were at that stage, they were looking at microprocessors to go into the soles of their shoes, uh, to change the kind of properties of the sole, etc. Um, and yeah, so they rejected it. And I just thought, oh, well, you know, I've tried, um, and then seven years later, I was teaching uh, a course uh, for the Czech Institute in, in New York, uh, New York city. And this, this, uh, student walked in wearing a pair of the first, you know, Vibram Five Fingers. Uh, it is, it is Vibram, by the way, because it's v- Vitali Brahmani uh, who set yeah. it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so he, um, this guy said, yeah, yeah, you know, I know, know someone at the, the company and they've just released them and, uh, you know, we can nip down to Tip Top Shoes, I think it was, in, in New York. So I went and bought a pair after class and, um, it, I, you know, I was just blown away. I thought this is exactly what I had in my mind's eye. Um, and I even thought, I wonder if Adidas have, have kind of sold the idea to someone. And I, I looked to see, you know, Googled them to see if uh, there was any kind of corporate relationship between uh, Vibram and Adidas. And there wasn't. There was this whole kind of backstory as to how Vibram had developed the shoe. And uh, it just so happened I was writing a, a chapter uh, on rehabilitation at the time for a, a natural medicine textbook. And so because it was natural medicine, I'd been looking at, you know, evolution essentially as because uh, it's a rehabilitation chapter so i thought well i'll use evolutionary principles and so i had a bunch of references about how you know barefoot could uh you know strengthen the feet and how it would re- reduce impact and how it could uh facilitate venous return and lymphatic return and all this kind of thing um so i wrote to to vibram to just say look 
wonderful products. I'm writing this chapter in this medical book. Would you like me to feature your shoes in the chapter? Um, you know, because I'm explaining the benefits of, of barefoot. And the CEO of Vibram USA wrote back to me to say, uh, what benefits are you talking about? Um, and so I explained, you know, it's got listed as I just did to you. I think I had eight or nine benefits I could list. And he wrote back saying, well, have you got references for that? And I said, well, yeah, it's a medical textbook. I've, you know, I've got all the references here. And so that was how the whole conversation unfolded because they really were still developing the shoe as a, as a sailing shoe. You know, it was not designed to be for running or training or anything. It was essentially in their mind's eye, uh, the, the guy who developed it loved the feel of barefoot uh, in the mountains, but it was the Vibram CEO. Uh, he went to several different shoe companies and none of them would take the idea on. They thought it was too crazy. But the Vibram CEO was a sailor and said, you know what? That has a great sort of application for, for the sailing market. And maybe we'll, uh, we'll be able to delve into that market with this product. So I ultimately, you know, I became the distributor of, uh, of the Vibram Five Fingers between 2007 and 2017 to the UK market. So uh, obviously it was quite deeply embedded in that whole story, um, which was great. Yeah. No, I think they sold six pair to sailors that year, but they sold thousands of pairs to climbers and joggers <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, and kayakers Absolutely. Uh, and, and yogis and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone mad enough to wear them. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah. But it's a, you know, it's a great example of, um, of kind of a low tech solution to a high tech problem, um, which is kind of the theme to everything that you and I have written about, which is, mm. uh, you know, there, are, um, we'll get into it later, but I, I'm, you know, we talk about, uh, archetypal rice postures and, and mm. in, in, in the papers, uh, and how they, I'm thinking in my mind, okay, the stand-up desk became de rigueur in the last 10 years. People are using stand-up desks. Uh, and that's the new thing. That's the paleo, that's the paleo way. Cause you're not sitting. And then of course you and I come along and the next thing we're saying, nope, stand-up desk is not the answer. In fact, it's, it's probably the wrong answer. Uh, you know, that, that these archetypal rust. So here I am using this high tech, you know, collapsible, very desk, which I love by the way. Um, uh, and I have a, um, I have another one at home that I spent four thousand dollars on. That's a beautiful piece of piece of work, and now I'm going to have to go back to the low tech solution, which is a, a, gra- a grass mat with variability on it and shifting my positions every ten minutes. That's, um, it. That's it. Yeah, but but it's but where I'm going with that is that this um, five finger, this minimalist shoe uh, movement, which for some reason seems to have subsided. Um, and I don't know whether it's the uh, advertising dollars of the maximalist shoe movement, but the yeah. idea that you would, you know, that some high tech shoe with a lot of cushioning and rear foot motion control and forefoot support and all this other stuff would somehow be better for you uh, as you move through this world. It's just mind boggling to me that yeah. almost in every event, in every case that you and I look at, there is a there is a low tech solution to a problem that pe- people are trying to apply, uh, you know, high tech, you know, high tech uh, things to. Yeah, uh, one of the one of the guys that worked with us actually, who was a, a sales manager, and he he worked with uh, Asics or Asics and with Nike, and he worked with them right around the time when their their uh, gel system had come out for, for Asics, and, and then the the uh, air system for, for Nike, and. Um, he was saying, you know, at one point he was just sat there looking at the, the the five fingers and he was saying, it's really fascinating, isn't it, that, that Nike spent, you know, millions and millions of dollars developing this technology. And it really works. It does what they say on the tin. You know, it's amazing technology. Yeah. And he was saying how they could drop 
eggs from a height of six foot onto this gel uh, pad. Yeah, yeah. They did it as a demonstration. It wouldn't break. Um, he said, but uh, he said that the, these technologies are solving the problem that wearing shoes cause in the first place. Bingo. He said, <laughs> no, exactly. oh, he's got it. He's got it. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's what I like to call digging a hole to put the ladder in to wash the basement windows. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. No, so it's funny, but you mentioned maximalist shoes and um, I don't know, have you, you, I imagine you've heard of Irene Davies. She's one of the researchers that did quite a lot of research around, around barefoot you know, yeah. impact and, and so on. Um, she, and she collaborated with, uh, with uh, Lieberman, Lieberman. Uh, Dan Lieberman, Dan Lieberman. Um, but in one of her studies on the maximalist shoes, she was using accelerometers on, I think, on the shins of people wearing uh, standard running shoes, barefoot and maximalist shoes, and uh, just looking at the, the ground impacts. Um, and uh, she found that when wearing the maximalist shoes, she, it actually went beyond what her accelerometers could measure. She actually kind of broke the system because the impact was so hard. And, um, of course, in running shoes, it was harder than barefoot. But it essentially went barefoot lowest, running standard running shoes next highest, and then maximus the highest. And if you think of it from a, a nervous system perspective, your nervous system wants to know where you're at in space. Okay, your eyes are trying to tell you, you know, don't walk into the wall, don't fall down the hole, yeah. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Your feet are telling you what the terrain's doing. And if you can't feel the terrain, well, you'll hit the ground harder until you feel the stability of the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. That, hap- so- that haptic response is everything. Mm-hmm. And, and when you bypass that, you just, all you're doing is you're saying, okay, we're going to let you run. Like if you were barefoot and you could run 40 miles a week, we're going to let you run 120 miles a week, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. with these cushioned shoes. Well, maybe yeah. the, maybe I look back to my running career when I was started in, in literally Chuck Taylor Converse, you know, sneakers. I ran in sneakers and then I ran in, um, um, you know, Tiger Onitsuka's. Probably before you were born, Matt. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, thin, thin soles. And it, it, you literally were limited in how many miles you could run that week because there was no cushioning at all. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I started to get cushioned shoes that I started to get injured. And I got uh, condromalacia. You know, I got that, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of yeah. uh, weird stuff. So anyway, it's uh, in the theme of in – this, in this theme of like, you know, low-tech, high-tech solutions – um, I want to ask you specifically, how have you applied paleo concepts clinically? Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Well, I, I guess you know, it's quite a broad question because obviously it covers every aspect really of what I do, um, you know, from, from nutrition to lifestyle to movement. Um, but I think, you know, with relevance to our, to our papers that we've just written, um, the, the idea of uh, biomechanical attractors, I guess, is, is the, the, the term that captures the notion of how the human physiology has evolved to function within the environment that it, uh, well, that it evolved in. And, uh, and so an attractor state is essentially, you know, in, in physics, an attractor state is a stable state. And really in human physiology, you would say, well, that's like homeostasis. It's, it's a stable state where everything's working well together. So the solar system is in a, an attractor state with the sun. Mm-hmm. The moon's in an attractor state with the earth. And so on, but often it starts out from chaos. So, you, so you start out from the big bang explosion, or the moon was an asteroid which hit the Earth, and there's complete chaos and confusion. And across time, that chaos always emerges into order, and that's that's essentially what an attractor state is. So, it's a stable, steady state that a system returns to consistently. So, when you look at human movement, well, there's certain states that we use consistently, like gait, for example, you know, walking gait, running gait, they're great examples of attractor states. 
if you start cycling or maybe swimming um, or, you know, getting on, on an elliptical trainer, well, they're kind of attractive states, but they're not, they don't really relate to how we got here. So from a physiological perspective, they're not nearly as good uh, an example of, of an attractor as something like walking or running. Um, but then also you've got other movement patterns such as squatting and bending and lunging and twisting and, and uh, pulling, pushing, etc. So th- those could all be considered attractor states because when you look at those, this is, this is essentially the, the check system of primal movement patterns. But the idea is that they are the kind of common denominators of all more complex movements. So if, if you were to throw a baseball, for example, well, you have to, you have to twist backwards. So you've got the twist there. You have to twist forwards and you go into a lunge at the same time. So you've got the twist and the lunge, twist twice, and you have to push with the hands to throw the ball forward. So you've got essentially three of those common denominators, which is twist, push, and lunge. Um, and depending on what you're looking at, you could be, it could be a jump shot in, uh, in basketball. And so you've got a squat to go into the jump. And as you jump up, then you've got the push for the shot. So you normally, no matter how complex the movement pattern is, you can normally break it down to a common denominator, which is the whole pull check sort of concept of primal patterns. So those primal patterns can be considered attractors. They're kind of core movement patterns in our motor cortex that we draw from whenever we move in a given way. And, and the, part of the theory behind motor learning is that the sheer complexity with which we can move, if you think of someone uh, you know, who's drunk a bit too much and they're, and they're uh, dancing or the night away, you know, the, the sort of variety of movements that you can, you can go into is, is incredible. Um, and, but if the, the, the brain can't store that many movement patterns, so it has to have kind of core um, fundamental movement patterns from which it adapts. So imagine someone throws, throws a ball towards your Frisbee. I know you're an ultimate Frisbee guy. So, you know, the Frisbee is coming towards you. If it's coming straight at you, you don't have to adapt much. But if it's to your side, you're going to have to lunge out. You may have to reach. You may even have to dive. Okay, so, so the complexity of that movement requires essentially some fundamental movement patterns. Your brain knows how to execute, and then you just adapt based on the direction of flight of, and the speed of the flight of, of the Frisbee. So that's that's a kind of attract. Those are some movement attractors. But you know what we really dive into uh, in the papers is is the idea of archetypal rest postures as as attractor states as well. And um, so these would be patterns that we go back to uh, to rest that are kind of predictable, stable states that our ancestors used for you know hundreds of thousands, probably millions of years, because you see it in the primates as well. So, you know, obviously most primates will spend a lot of time squatting in a deep rested position in, in the squat. But human uh, primates, <laughs> they, will, they, they will use the floor a lot more. So they, they will kneel, they will sit cross-legged, they'll sit long-legged. Uh, there's variations on the kneel. You can go high kneel, so you've got your toes tucked under, or you've got the low kneel where you, essentially your foot's uh, plantar flex and, the, and the, the back of the foot so against the floor you can go into a side kneel so you're off to one side but essentially each of those states you know none of them is particularly comfortable for a protracted period and each of them stretches a different muscle group so so what you see with a kind of sports medicine hat on if we're talking about you know stretching before sports or maintaining the kind of optimal length tension relationships around the joints well if you just knelt the whole day long and that was your primary and, and only rest posture, well, you're going to essentially create a length tension relationship imbalance. Your hamstrings are going to get short at the lower end. Your quads are going to get long and so on. But if you combine kneeling 
with sitting long-legged. Well, now your hamstrings are going to get lengthened. And so, you know, the, the notion behind these different archetypal rest postures is that none of them is inherently particularly comfortable. So after 5, 10, 15 minutes, you'll switch to a different posture. Okay. And by switching to a different posture, you therefore maintain length of tension relationships about the joints. So you don't need to stretch after sports because you just sit down and rest on the floor. You don't need to stretch before sports because you've been stretching the whole time you've been resting. Right. Um, oh, I mean, imagine, imagine in an evolutionary sense, um, you know, in a fight or flight, uh, you know, dangerous situation, uh, there's the saber tooth approaching your camp and you go, uh, hold on, Mr. Sabretooth. Um, if I'm going to sprint from you, I have to warm up a little bit here. I got to do some, yeah. some knee lifts. I got to stretch a little bit. Okay. No, but these archetypal rest postures are, are they basically leave you prepared to immediately spring into action. Um, it's, it's so, again, the, the, the things we talk about are so low tech, Matt, that they, people would, that they, they can't really kind of, kind of grasp how critical these are to human movement, to human, not just human biomechanics but biochemistry it's it, it's crazy and that's when i again when I, when I said at the beginning of this discussion it opens the door for so much investigation into specific areas uh of uh you know uh length tension uh glucose management um you know uh, sympathetic parasympathetic you know all the different things that kind of spring to mind as a result of a very simple concept which is we ought not to be sitting on a sofa all day and we probably ought not to be standing at a desk all day. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and if we, you know, if we, if we when in doubt, go back to that ancestral, that archetypal rest posture, um, you don't, you don't need to then allocate an hour to go do yoga because yeah. you're basically doing yoga all day. Um, I love the fact that the, that the postures themselves uh, start out being comfortable and then ease into being slightly uncomfortable to the extent that you don't have to hold the posture. You don't have to hold the quote pose yes, right? like yeah. you would in, in yoga. You just, they're self-limiting. And so you shift to another one. You shift one side to the other side. You shift a high knee to a low knee or you shift a, you know, a squat to a long leg. I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant in its utter simplicity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you touched on the, the, uh, you know, some of the other additional potential benefits to it there, which, is that, you know, we've known for quite some time that, that stretching induces a parasympathetic response. So, you know, a rest and digest response. So what better thing to do when you're eating your dinner or after you've been out for your hunt or, or in inverted commas or your sport or whatever, than to sit on the ground and stretch out, you know, and use these different postures to stretch, to switch your physiology back to a more parasympathetic state, get you ready to eat. You know, you can just picture it in a primal environment. You know, you've been out on the hunt or you've been out gathering all morning and you get back home with whatever you've managed to, to, to collect. And then, you know, everyone sits around the fire and, you know, they're kneeling down, they're squatting down, they're essentially stretching out. Yeah, yeah. And, the, you know, and, and it's sending them into this parasympathetic. So it's helping them to come down from that sympathetic fight-flight state into the afternoon where they're going to eat, eat their, their catch, whatever it is. And, you know, normalize their length tension relationships and just send them into that more parasympathetic state going into the evening so they can then have a good night's sleep. You know, it kind of the, the, the patterns seem to, uh, you know, fit really neatly. Actually, we, one thing we haven't mentioned is um, instinctive sleep postures. And we didn't really touch on this in our paper so much. But I, the way I envisage it is that you've got the primal movement patterns as, you know, how you get about. Um, then you've, so they're the active component. Then you've got two passive components. And, and one is 
the archetypal rest postures, which is what you do when you get back from your hunting and gathering uh, or after sports in a more sort of uh, contemporary environment, uh, or even when you're at work, potentially, you know, uh, in, in a contemporary environment. Um, and then when you go to bed at night, you've got your instinctive sleep postures. And, and this idea was from a guy called Michael Tetley. And he was a, a British physiotherapist who um, actually he have you have you seen his paper, Mark? Yeah, he, he wrote a paper. It was one of these things. He knew, he knew someone at the British Medical Journal, so he managed to get this paper into the BMJ, uh, you know, which probably wouldn't otherwise have been published. But but uh, it's great great insights, and I think it's from 1999. He was he was brought up in Uganda and ended up because there was a civil war. He ended up you know fighting in the army. He was in the jungle, so he spent a lot of time with the, the locals uh, in a very natural environment, but also surrounded by various apes in the trees and so he was just observing what was going on and watching the way the locals slept on the floor because of course they didn't have duvets and pillows <laughs> and you know mattresses in the jungle um and um and also watching the primates as well and, and so anyway he um he sadly got shot in the head bullet went straight through his optic chiasma and blinded him but he survived it and came back to the uk i think only then he trained as a physiotherapist whilst blinded um, and then developed this whole concept of instinctive sleep postures. But essentially what he was pointing to was the notion that, you know, there's certain ways that you can lie that, again, reset kind of length tension relationships and joint mobility and using your arms as pillows, for example, you know, that maintains mobility in the shoulder, um, laying prone, which a lot of physical therapists say you shouldn't do, you shouldn't sleep on your tummy, which, you know, is probably, you know, obviously well-intentioned, but it's a little bit... Uh, short-sighted because when you lay on your tummy you know you have to turn your head through a full 90 70 to 90 degrees to get get your cheekbone down which first of all maintains length tension and mobility in the neck but also you know the reason they say not to do that is because they assume that then you'll be stuck there but they're kind of missing the point that you've got a nervous system attached to your joints and and you know at a certain point the firing will be sufficient that you pick your head up and turn the other direction during your sleep you know it's not going to wake you up Right. A, lot so, of this pre- uh, a lot of this presupposes that you're sleeping on a a cushioned mattress too, yeah. um, you know. And I think the archety- the archetypal sleep postures would also suggest that you're sleeping on a harder surface, and therefore um, you're getting you know that that sort of length tension, comfort, discomfort. You know, you switch positions when it makes sense: the arm above or the arm to the side. Um, you know, the fetal position, the splayed position on the belly. Yeah. All of these things. Um, they, t- they tend to be more applicable to the concept if you're sleeping on a harder surface than on your sleeping, if you're sleeping on some Absolutely. soft, downy cushion. Do you know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Katie Bowman? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, uh, she's a biomechanist and, uh, she's been a leader in a lot of this stuff. In fact, uh, I published uh, a book of hers called don't just sit there. And, um, okay. and, uh, she, uh, I put her up in a, she was going to speak at an event. I put her up in a hotel, right? And it was a fairly expensive hotel. And then I found out she slept on the floor the whole time she was there. And that's because <laughs> that's her preferred place to sleep. And uh, I think it's, it's just brilliant, as you would say. It's just like, uh, you know, she's, she's practicing what she preaches and she's, she, she feels so comfortable on a floor that she, she chooses to sleep on a floor and not on, you know, some cushioned um, yeah, bed surface. Yeah. Well, here's, here's one of the things about that is that 
it ties in with infant development, right? So, you know, the way a child learns to move, the way the actual nervous system is programmed as, as an infant is that the child is placed, you heard of tummy time, a child has to lay on their tummy for a certain period of time, right? Um, and if they don't get tummy time, then they typically fail to develop functional crawling patterns. Um, and the reason that happens is because when you're on your tummy, it's uncomfortable. So it creates a stimulus, it creates an afferent or a sensory drive into the nervous system to say, this is uncomfortable. And eventually, as that drive increases, they call it an afferent bombardment. So you're getting lots of sensory drive into the spinal cord. That afferent bombardment eventually creates an efferent or a motor drive, which gets you to pick the head up and turn it or pick the arm up and lift it. So that's how the child's nervous system is actually programmed to move in the first instance. So as an adult, you know, we go out and we, you know, may, maybe, you know, you're diving for your, for your Frisbee and, and you, 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 you know, get a bit of a whiplash or land awkwardly on your shoulder or something. Well, you know, you're going to have um, pain drives from, from whatever joints you've just stressed and pain inhibits certain muscles, uh, particularly the deep stabilizer muscles around the spine or around the joints. So now you've got a kind of dysfunctional situation for a period of time whilst that pain is is uh, being processed and, and the situation is resolving. But if you don't get those areas properly rehabilitated, again, in inverted commas, properly rehabilitated, then the, what science has shown is that these deep intrinsic muscles don't switch on automatically in the general population. They have to be rehabilitated by someone who knows what they're doing. And you think, well, that doesn't really make sense from an evolutionary perspective. It makes no sense whatsoever. But if you put someone, let's say, in an instinctive sleep posture, then what it does is it actually reprograms the nervous system. So the nervous system learns once again to, to turn when there's a certain amount of stress on the joint and to activate. Because essentially, the, 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 when you get a small amount of stress on the joint, what you get is you get activation of the deep fibers around the joint. So you get these deep intrinsic muscles around the spine, like the multifidus and the rotatoris and intertransversarii, all these little tiny muscles, which don't really have any great power. Um, but they're the ones that get inhibited by pain. So if, you, if, if you've had an injury, they tend to get switched off. It's just the way the, the wiring works. We need to find a way to, to get them switched back on again. And so, you know, one way to do that is through things like instinctive sleep postures and creating a little bit of stress on the joint, which stimulates uh, essentially activation of the tonic nervous system and activation of these deep intrinsic muscles so it's you know the whole system set up so that in an evolutionary context you'd rehabilitate beautifully you know um but we tend not to allow that in our modern environment well yeah and and one thing that comes to mind would be this notion that um that i want to be if i want to be sleeping deeply i don't want to be tossing and turning all night um Mm. can you dispel that notion for me Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in fact, it's a question that I've asked from my clients um, for probably about 20 years now. I have a little questionnaire that I send out before they come in to see me. And and I will say, you know, what's your preferred sleeping posture? And quite often they'll say, I only sleep on my back or something like that, or I can only sleep on my left side. But the reality is, is that the research into to sleep postures shows that people move on average between 40 and 70 times per night. So they may think that they only sleep in one position, but the point is that they're constantly changing. And that's because of this stress that occurs in any given position. You're under stress. Whether, so whether or not you are supported by a comfortable bed or a fluffy pillow. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we sometimes see discomfort as an enemy, but really it's, it's a friend, you know, really it's, it's designed to, uh, get us to move, of course. So we, we, we alter the stresses on the system, but also it helps to reprogram the nervous system as well. So, you know, it, it's, it's the, the, you need a little bit of discomfort just to, to push you to move. And, um, 
unfortunately, you know, one of the things I say about pillows is, is that pillows are props that propagate dysfunction, you know, and, you know, there's obviously that's, that's a purist view. So it's not, you know, there are people that need pillows and there are times when pillows can be beneficial. So I'm not saying everyone throw their pillows out, but to maintain good shoulder and neck function, I would say getting rid of your pillow can be a great help. Um, so you, but, you, pro- you probably have to evolve toward that. I mean, it's like, uh, yes, you know, we're talking, yeah. we talk a lot these days about, uh, uh, cold water therapy, cryotherapy, you know, getting into a, into a cold dip or a cold plunge, uh, as a nice hormetic sp- stressor. And the fact is the first time you do it, 10 seconds is plenty of time, you know, and then, and then you have to work your way up, but then you can do three, four, five minutes and you have to work your way up to it. I suspect the same goes, it would hold true for this, um, instinctive sleep posture in that, if you set the environment up properly, in other words, if you choose uh, the firmest possible mattress that you can stand, mm-hmm. if in fact that's your, you know, what you want to do, uh, and 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 then start to wean yourself off a pillow, you might then over a period of weeks rehabilitate yourself enough to achieve these sort of ideal instinctive sleeping postures in in a way that um, you know self regulates throughout the night. In other words, you spend enough time in one posture, you move over, you, you know, you switch around a couple of times and you still get a good night's sleep. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think you always need to qualify the individual you're talking to. If someone's got a very kyphotic thoracic curve, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, then they're, they're going to take longer to adapt than someone who's got a good flexible thoracic curve, but you know, with self mobilization and, and just, you know, functional activity, you, you mobilize that thoracic spine, no problems. Um, uh, a brief story there, though, is that when I first started to try sleeping without a pillow, I always used to leave the pillow on the bed because, you know, my wife didn't like the look of it. it you know, one, one pillow missing, the bed looked uh-huh. asymmetrical and not very pretty. So I'd leave it on the bed and then I'd go to bed. I'd take the pillow out, put it down by the side of the bed. And for about the first two or three weeks, I'd wake up with it under my head. And I think, how did that get there? But obviously in my sleep, I get to a point where I just, my hand would search out of the bed, grab the pillow, put it back under my head. Because it was just, you know, it was a habit pattern. Um, but bit by bit, you know, I found I wasn't picking the pillow up in my sleep. <laughs> and um, and I was waking up without the pillow there. And, and uh, yeah, I've had no no issues since. And, you know, a lot of clients and students and colleagues that have, uh, you know, made that transition. And it's, you know, either helped their neck dramatically or it's helped their shot. One guy that uh, was a, a student of mine a couple of years ago, I just explained this briefly to him about his, his he had a shoulder issue. Um Classically, with the shoulder, it's the anterior capsule that gets lax and the posterior capsule that gets tight. And I was explaining that if you if you use your arm as a pillow, well, your, the weight of your head's actually mobilizing the posterior capsule, which is exactly what he needed. So I said, you know, maybe just get rid of your pillow and give that a go. And um, I saw him last year, so about a year after I'd given him that advice, and he said that was the best bit of advice you, you know I ever got. My shoulder's completely better now. He'd had it for ten years previously or something, you know. And so just something so simple can make a massive difference to someone's function it's just uh it shouldn't be surprising in some ways but in other ways it, it is because it's it's such a, a simple intervention so fascinating because now you t- you you know you, you started by saying that a pillow is a prop for um um what was it what was the term you used? That, that, that propagates dysfunction so so by putting your arm over your head with a pillow um, even though you're getting, um, oh, no, that, no, not with a pillow. No, no, so you, no, 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 this is oh, where okay. I'm going. This okay, is where okay. I'm going. Is, is that, is that the posture with an arm over the head under the pillow, um, feels comfortable, but
but it's not it's not an effective and it may in fact be propagating dysfunction and you get rid of the pillow and now you you make that contact where the where the top of the shoulder becomes the support now all of a sudden it's functional is that what you're saying yeah exactly that yeah yeah the, suddenly- I, I feel like there's a lot of people myself included who have shoulder issues that that derive from sleeping with in that posture with your arm over your head extended but with a pillow there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so now we're, it's like it's a subtle difference and yet it's a huge difference to think that one could be propagating this function the other could be fixing it yeah yeah it is it is fascinating it's um and, you know, in Michael Tetley's paper, I have to send you his paper, but he's got a number of other things where he talks about the shape of the wrist and how that fits beautifully with the cheekbone. So you can rest your head on the cheekbone. It keeps your ear clear of the ground so you can still hear what's going on. Because he was, he was in a wartime environment. So, you know, he needed to know if there were people coming, uh, you know, if there's any kind of danger. And so, you know, he, what he noticed was that the, the, the natives, the, the locals, had various ways of sleeping that kept their ears and their eyes clear of the ground you know so there, there's a, like a lookout posture he describes um and uh yeah a number of other postures but but you know it all makes sense that if you have uh you know if, if you're asleep it's when, when you're you're most vulnerable obviously uh sure. in nature so sure. you want to want to have ways and means of uh minimizing the risk and uh and so he talks about that but uh yeah it's all fascinating Absolutely. stuff it's very fascinating. And one of the things that, um, again, just sort of stretches the imagination and who would have thought of this and who would have made the connection. But in our paper, we also discuss how poor blood sugar management mm. um, and other lifestyle stressors may be drivers in connective tissue injury. Um, yeah. And that that some of these archetypal rest postures may, in fact, help uh, better manage blood sugar. Yeah, well, that was quite a shock to me when I when I read the papers around it. But um, it came off the paper. We, you know, part of the role for, for our editorial that we wrote was to pick two papers that go into the journal and talk about something that we we wanted to expand on. And so one of the papers was was talking about how stretching manages type two diabetes and uh, and improves uh, blood sugar management. And um, so, of course, my mind jumps straight to archetypal rest postures and instinctive sleep postures, and I, that, that's obviously how, how we end up writing around it. But um, the uh, what it seems is that when you stretch a, a muscle, then it uh, increases the glucose uptake in the muscle cell and in the sarcolemma in particular. Um, and so, you know, these various studies were essentially looking at passive stretching to... That was um, a really fascinating part of it, is yeah. this active stretching... Versus like, you know, stuff you do before you're warming up to go yeah. hit the track or, or even maybe in yoga or, well, not, not so much yoga because that's, that tends toward arch- archetypal response, but you know, just yeah. this sort of out stretching that we do in the gym and in between sets versus passive stretching, which again, you would have thought the active stretching was a much more, um, you know, efficient and effective means of doing it. But tell us about the passive stretching thing. Well, so yeah, it turns out that that because um, there have been several papers on this, and and it turns out that passive stretching is more effective at reducing blood sugar levels. Um, and as you say, a bit counterintuitive, but it seems that the the passive stretch creates more ischemia in the muscle, which is also interesting from a tendon re- repair perspective, uh, because obviously we 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 take the papers into talking about various connective tissue issues, including Achilles tendinopathy and uh, lateral epicondylitis and so on. Um, and one of the things, yes, exactly. Um, 
but you know, one of the things we know about those kind of tendon injuries is that um, there's too much blood within the tendon quite often. There's what's called neovascularization. So all that means new blood vessels being put down. Um, and one of the key treatments for, for tendon injuries is to do eccentric loading to create ischemia in the, the, the tendon. So just to reduce the blood flow. And we know from the passive stretching, so going back to the, the sort of original discussion, passive stretching seems to create more ischemia in the muscle. That leads on to um, an increase in something called GLUT4, which is, uh, which is glucose transporter 4. Um, so increasing in GLUT4 in the muscle, and that ends up uh, increasing glucose uptake within the muscle. So uh, so therefore, balancing blood sugar or helping to, to bring blood sugar levels down. So when we see this as a societal issue that we have so many people with blood sugar dysregulation, and of course, not many people stretching for, not, and even if they are, for not much of their week, just by bringing archetypal rest postures into your daily life could make a huge difference to your blood sugar control and was probably part of that control from an evolutionary perspective. Now, let's define passive stretching because, um, you know, the active stretching is, is you on your own in the gym, you know, ballistically or dynamically or bouncing or whatever you're trying to hold a, a, a pose, a stretch pose. Yeah. Passive stretching could be a person who is, who is working like a physical therapist, working you through the range of motion, passively stretching you. In fact, they have, uh, they have a place here in Miami called the stretch zone. And you go there and you pay somebody, you know, you, for, they put you on a bed with all these different straps and things and they, and they, you know, they passively stretch you for an hour. Um, but another way, and this is the thing that's really interesting about the archetypal rest postures is, is the concept of gravity and, and the earth. So mm. just talk about yeah, that yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Well, if you think about the notion that, you know, gravity is an extrinsic force, um, as is as is actually the Earth. So the Earth is what typically would be called a planar surface. So it's a relatively flat surface. And so if we look at how humans evolved, in fact, any animal, but, but if, we're, if we're interested in humans, then we, we look at how we evolved. We evolved with those two primary stresses, the, the 9.8 meters per second squared of gravity pulling us towards the center of the Earth. So to give you an idea, 9.8 meters per second squared is, is the acceleration force. And if you were to accelerate that fast down 100 meters, you'd get to the end in about, I think it's 4.6 seconds. It's 4 point something. So it's pretty pretty damn fast. It's a lot of force. Faster than your table. That's it, yeah. Um, and, then, and then you've got, you've got um, you know, the resistance of the ground. And so when we are sat down on the ground, we're being passively stretched by gravity in these archetypal rest postures, which is, you know, distinct from standing up, sticking your bum out and, uh, you know, sort of rocking around, trying to get a bit of a hamstring stretch. Um, so it would seem that the archetypal rest postures probably have more akin to the passive stretching that was used in these, these studies, um, which were done by therapists. But the interesting thing was they were done for 30-second holds. Um, and so an archetypal rest posture, most people could hold any of the postures for 30 seconds, maybe with a bit of a grimace for some people uh, first run through. But across a period of time, you know, most people can kneel for a few minutes, sit cross-legged for a few minutes, sit long-legged for a few minutes. So what you're getting is you're getting a passive stretch for a longer period of time and therefore likely a higher uptake of, of blood sugar that's uh, free, you know. So, uh, so yeah. I mean, this, 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 the, the, so the, the archetypal rest posture concept is like the holy grailist it's next level paleo stuff because we've, as I said, we've moved beyond 
sitting and we've now we've moved beyond the stand up desk. So now we're back to the back to the ground. Now I'm thinking about all those times at the Japanese restaurant where I was sitting or kneeling cross legged at a, on a tatami mat at a, at a low table thinking how uncomfortable it was and how was it was it going to be rude for me to shift my position? Now I feel like, no, it's not only rude. It's it's you know, it's suggested in de rigueur. No. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly, it's, it's, it's exactly what you're supposed to do. That's what you, you know, you, you listen to your nervous system, then it will tell you what to do. So you take the posture after a period of time, it gets uncomfortable, you shift the posture and it just creates different stresses on different parts of the system. And that's, and across a period of, of weeks and months, you'll find that all of those, com- those uh, positions become comfortable. So this, um, is a, this is really such exciting stuff. And like I say, it's, it's really it's opened the door for me to investigate. I, when I started Mark's Daily Apple in 2006, I thought I'll write about something every day for a year. Mm-hmm. And at the end of a year, I'll have written everything there that I need to write about diet and exercise and fitness yeah. and health. And yeah. all along, every time I, I work on some project, a whole bunch of new doors would open up. Yeah. Um, and that's what's going on for me here. This has been such a fascinating experience working with you on this. So we're going to link – people who have not yet read the papers, we're going to link to them um, in the show notes here. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt, how can people uh, find out more about what you do, what you've done, and, and access your information? Sure, sure. Well, they can find me uh, obviously on the, all the social media channels. It's all either Matt Walden with two Ts and two Ls or Matthew Walden, um, again, with two Ts and two Ls, no surprise, uh, or at mattwalden.com. So that's, that's probably the easiest way to find me is mattwalden.com. Awesome. Well, it's been great talking with you about this and great working with you on these papers. I look forward to doing more in the future. Likewise. Uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much, Mark. Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. used to be called Primal Calm, and the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress. Whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind, we're constantly triggering the fight or flight mode in modern life. And when people say, hey, you should take a chill pill, this really is a chill pill. Because when you consume an appropriate amount of phosphatidylserine and the other supportive ingredients that have been known to have a calming effect on the central nervous system, things like magnesium, L-theanine, magnolia bark, and rhodiola, you will get a calming effect. It's not like a stimulant product that makes you feel more energy and have a better workout but instead this sort of takes the edge off of that stress buzz where you feel that foggy brain function maybe a little shaky and finally fried at the end of a busy stressful day this stuff will help you clear your bloodstream from those catabolic stress hormones before they can do the damage so i like to take significant quantities of it in and around stressful events such as jet travel or in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used 
in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.